You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. We were established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a public, nonpartisan institute dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. On behalf of the United States Institute of Peace, we are delighted, very pleased to welcome all of you for a special fireside conversation on the Israel-Gaza conflict with Senator Tom Cotton and a member of the USIP board, Roger Zykam. As many of you know, we have a newsmaker series. This is when we invite distinguished members of Congress to speak with distinguished members of the Washington political class. In our case, we're lucky that the distinguished member of the Senate, Senator Cotton, and the distinguished member of the political class, Roger, is with us on the board. The aim of these series is to have a set of discussions where we express views on issues. We hope that these views are respected. We know that the most important thing in a democracy is that people feel that they can say what they want to say in the way that we want to say them, and this is an opportunity for that to happen here. It's my privilege to introduce our distinguished guest, Senator Cotton, was elected as the senator from Arkansas in 2014 after two years of service in the House of Representatives. Senator Cotton is a decorated Iraq war veteran with four years of active service in the U.S. Army and three years of service in the Army Reserve. The Senator serves on the Senate Judiciary Intelligence and Armed Services Committees and is the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Criminal Justice and Terrorism and the Subcommittee on Air Land. In these roles, Senator Cotton is a strong advocate for diplomacy for international human rights and the need for clear-eyed American leadership abroad. The senator has demonstrated commitment to peace, to partnership, and stability, and is one of our country's most trusted voices on foreign policy and national security issues. We are also pleased to welcome USIP board member Roger Zykin, who will be moderating our fireside discussion. Roger currently serves as the Washington director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. He previously served as the Deputy Assistant of Defense and as the General Counsel and Deputy Staff Director of the U.S. House Armed Services Committee. In 2022, Roger was nominated by the President of the United States and confirmed by the Senate as a member of the Board of USIP. Thank you all for being with us today. Roger, with your permission, we hand to you. Fantastic. Thanks, Lise, for that uh, kind uh, introduction. And uh, really an honor to have the opportunity to participate in this series, particularly with uh, Senator Cotton, who will uh, kick things off with some observations on, on the subject of tonight's discussion, and then I'll follow up with uh, questions and discussion points for the balance of our time. Senator. Well, thanks, Roger, for having me here, and thanks to the Institute of Peace. Lise, thank you very much for the kind introduction and for... Uh, um, what you do here. Um, it's true that we confirmed Roger to the position. I knew this board. was coming. I As knew, a, goodness. <laughs> thus far, it doesn't seem to be cause for regret, <laughs> although he has many, many years ahead of him for us to, uh, to regret that decision. But Roger, thanks very much for your work, not just here with the Institute of Peace, but at the Reagan Foundation as well. Um, you know, 
We're at the Institute of Peace, and, and peace is one of the highest goods in foreign policy. Um, that's what most foreign policy, at least here in the United States, aims towards, and, and usually um, what we want to achieve. Um, but we also see around the world, um, yet again, that, that peace does not seem to be the natural condition of mankind. Um, peace is not something that just flowers without being cultivated and preserved uh, and, and actively sought. Uh, in fact, if you look across the sweep of history, it would seem that war is the natural condition of mankind, uh, although perhaps paradoxically so, because it also seems that no particular war, big or small, is inevitable, even if war itself is inevitable. Um, war typically occurs through the failure of leaders from various countries to actively cultivate and pursue peace, which takes an expenditure of effort and resources just as surely as it does to win a war, although much less expenditure of resources and time and effort. And whether you see the failure of deterrence in Ukraine almost two years ago now, um, or with Hamas in Gaza just a couple months ago, we see the wages of what happens whenever we fail to to actively cultivate and pursue peace and realize, at the namesake of your other employer, uh, that what Ronald Reagan says, peace has to be achieved through strength. It has to be achieved through making those who are dissatisfied with the state of the world, with their lot in the world, who would upend uh, that state of affairs through violence if necessary, to know they have no chance to succeed. Um, and time and again, when we see uh, the preservation of peace fail, it's almost always because of a failure of deterrence, a failure to scare the bad guys straight. Um, it's very costly once that happens, as we've seen in Ukraine over the last two years, you see in Gaza uh, and Israel over the last two months or so. Um, so I, I'm very hopeful that both those conflicts and other conflicts can be brought to a quick and uh, satisfactory outcome. But at the same time, I think it's a lesson uh, that here at the Institute of Peace we can always keep in mind as well, that it's not something that's just natural, not something that we enjoy without effort mm. and time and, and resources. Well, when we pick up there, um, and, and of course the subject discussion tonight is, is October 7th and, and uh, the war that broke out in Gaza after uh, Hamas's attack on Israel. And, Curious to get your take on framing that that war as Israel's 9/11. Um, you, of course, served in the military after 9/11. I've written a book, um, uh, in part reflecting on those who served and the impact. And um, I am curious if you think that is the the right parallel uh, for how America should think about what October 7th means. Uh, to Israel um, and, and more broadly in the region. Is that a helpful construct? Well, I mean, you could say that it's really 15 9-11s for Israel, given the small size of that nation and the number who lost their lives there. And I'd, I'd also say the, the immediate um, visceral impact on, on Israelis is probably even greater than what we experienced in here in this country in 9-11 because of our size, right. both the number of people we have and 
the scale of our territory. Um, there are plenty of people living in Arkansas, or for that matter, living in Washington State and Oregon or otherwise around the world who, who probably didn't have any immediate impact when those airplanes hit the tower or the Pentagon or Flight 93 went down. They didn't know anybody killed on it. Um, they hadn't served with people who were at the NYPD or FDNY who went as first responders. Um, they were appalled. They wanted vengeance. They wanted a sense of safety again. They might have been affected, affected by it in years afterwards, right. whether they served in the military themselves or just had to live through some of the aftermath of the um, practices that we ado adopted in this country, like the TSA. That kind of pales in comparison, though, to what Israel experienced on October 7th. Again, because of its small size, both its small population, about 10 million in geography, um, also because of its universal military service, there's almost no Israeli probably that, that wasn't immediately impacted by it, um, or at most one degree removed. If you didn't know someone or weren't related to someone um, who was murdered or um, maimed or kidnapped, you probably knew someone who knew someone. And then certainly you knew people who were immediately deployed um, in the war. Um, and, and you see that ripple across Israel, soci Israel society still very much so. so it probably the, the, the impact it had was even more than the impact that 9-11 had on us. Um, uh, now that, that said, uh, I would say that the better comparison I, I think might be Pearl Harbor. Um, Al-Qaeda was a terrorist group. It used very unconventional asymmetric methods of flying airplanes loaded with a lot of jet fuel into towers in the Pentagon. Um, Hamas is a terrorist group. Hamas is also a governing entity as well. It has governing responsibility for territory. and just like Imperial Japan did, uh, and it launched a surprise attack on an, another sovereign nation. And the response that, that we had to Pearl Harbor is probably more apt response to what Israel has towards Gaza, um, which it, or to Hamas governing Gaza, which is unconditional surrender. Um, now, unconditional surrender for a lot of the people of Hamas probably means they're gonna get killed, because they're not gonna be surrendering anytime soon. But um, I, I would look at Pearl Harbor maybe is the more apt comparison. And I, I would say that what we did in J Germany and Japan and the standards to which we held ourselves is the standards to which we should hold Israel and, and nothing higher. I want to get to that in, in, in a bit because you're hitting on American policy and, and, and how we're uh, engaging with Israeli leadership on that. But uh, interesting, you, you referenced Pearl Harbor and the end state always the, the strategist and, and thinking about the end of the conflict and where we go from here. Of course, Israel's articulated as destruction of Hamas. Uh, love to get your take on, is it realizable? Uh, do they have the right strategy in place uh, to accomplish that? Um, here we are, plus 60 days plus into this conflict. Um, it's nowhere seems to kind of su suggest we're, we're coming to a close. Tens of thousands as reported by Hamas uh, ent controlled entities in, in Gaza uh, um, uh, killed. Uh, rockets still being fired from Gaza into sovereign territory in Israel. Um, given their Israeli IDF objective, do you think it's something that can be achieved? I do. I mean, some people say, oh, Hamas is an idea, an ideology. It can't be defeated. Um, Hamas, as I said, is also a terrorist group and a governing entity. And it has all the hallmarks of a governing entity inside of Gaza. Why do they have this massive tunnel network? Why do you not see that elsewhere in the world? It's because elsewhere terrorist groups don't control the territory. They don't actually have sovereign control over it. They're not able to tunnel in 
hundreds of kilometers uh, underneath their territory to protect themselves uh, from retaliatory attacks. So Hamas can absolutely be destroyed as a governing entity uh, and as a militant group. You know, its leaders can be killed or captured, its fighters can be killed or captured, its weapon caches can be destroyed, its tunnels can be flooded or destroyed. It absolutely can be destroyed. Uh, and I, I think Israel is on pace to doing that. You know, going back to the 9-11 analogy, which of course is a great intelligence failure. You have the 9-11 Commission, others, the uh, Silverman Rod Report, and the United States studied that deeply uh, because it missed the intel. Uh, reporting, uh, you're of course on the Intelligence Committee, but public reporting uh, suggests that Israeli uh, intelligence entities uh, anticipated this, filed a report, knew this was coming. Uh, the policy or political leadership uh, missed it, didn't pay attention to it. Um, are you surprised that Israel and, and their, with their technological prowess and military prowess missed something that clearly uh, um, presented a, a huge threat, uh, not just to their military, but to their people? Well, I will say it was a failure. Uh, the government of Israel has acknowledged that as well. And, and they promised that there'll be a, a full accounting for that after the war is over, something that's commonplace in, uh, in Israel, maybe less so than in many Western democracies. Um, so I don't want to prejudge all the particular details uh, about what that might ultimately find. I'll give some observations, though, um, just kind of common sense observations and not classified information that we've been briefed on or anything. Um, as is often the case, I think part of the failure is going to be a failure of human intelligence, yeah. a failure to maintain the kind of network of agents inside of Gaza and inside Hamas that could alert Israel uh, that certain factions inside of Hamas were taking very careful, deliberate steps to avoid electronic surveillance and detection, and they were up to no good. Um, that is the case with many intelligence failures throughout history, and especially throughout modern history, and it seems to be accelerating uh, you know, in our lifetime, um, is that you, you have voices that sit comfortably in places like Washington and say like, oh, well, we don't need to go to all the risk and, and all the danger um, and the potential for, um, for failure, you know, failure to actually produce any intelligence to develop spies in other countries. Like we can rely on whiz-bang technology, mm -hmm. you know, sitting in front of a computer in Washington, D.C. And that's true. You can do that for some things. And that's important. Um, and there are some things that intelligence collection is very good at without human intelligence. I mean, there's only so long you can hide a satellite or so long that you can hide, you know, uh, naval ships or missile sites. Um, electronic surveillance, satellite surveillance, very good for those things. Um, but it's less good for the, the plans of, of what the bad guys are up to. There's a reason why you know, intelligence professionals always say, like, oh, plans and intentions of leaders are, are the hardest thing to get. It's like, yeah, they make it very hard to right. get it. Like Vladimir Putin is not on his iPhone, you know. He's not on the computer. He's not on a computer. He's not surfing the web. You know, he, the way he and others like him communicate make it very hard to have any clear insight into what they're thinking. However, you can oftentimes, especially for leaders of nation states, maybe not terrorist groups, you can often infer their plans fairly enough based on what they say publicly and what they commit their national resources to. That's one thing, I think a failure of, of human intelligence um, and over-reliance, which our country is often guilty, guilty of as well, is you know, technical or electronic surveillance and intelligence. Um, a second um, failure, and again, this is a very common 
feature as well of intelligence failures. Seems to be a failure of imagination. Right. Um, you know, you look at um, Yahya Sinwar, uh, a man who has no doubt been plotting something like this for years, probably since he got out of that Israeli jail, maybe since he was put into the Israeli jail. Um, in a sense, in some parts of Israeli society that maybe Hamas had moderated, maybe Hamas wanted to become a responsible governing authority in Gaza, or at least it was sufficiently deterred and it didn't want to risk the kind of punishing retaliatory war that Israel has launched now. Um, it's the same failure you see with the Biden administration and their views on Iran and all of Iran's proxies. The idea, as it's sometimes called in the intelligent world, of mirror imaging. That, yeah. that these people want exactly what we want, they're exactly like we are. Maybe they're just misguided or even misunderstood. That's not the case. I mean, we should believe what they say, um, especially when they commit a lot of resources to it. You know, I was in a Senate hearing recently and someone said, I wonder what the Houthis want. And, and my response was, well, their flag says death to Israel and death to <coughs> Jews. Maybe clear. we should take that seriously. Um, so I think a failure of imagination about exactly what the bad guys are up to is probably at work here as well. And again, it's common throughout history. It's the yeah. way Western leaders underestimated the ambitions, not only of Adolf Hitler, but also of the Kaiser before World War I. Just to press the point out, and then I wanna, I wanna definitely uh, go to Iran. We can't have Senator Khan here without commenting on, on, on Iran here. Um, but. There was this notion of, I think, containment, that we could contain, that Israel could contain Hamas. Uh, and then you look what was going on geopolitically in the region. Um, you know, it, it was the Abraham Accords, right? Uh, and let's focus on what I think uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu viewed as the existential threat to Tehran. Um, you know, that, that was a, 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 seems to be a, a you know, a, blind spot, but almost it was, it was just got the strategy wrong, right? Um, that, that this was so, some sort of a challenge that uh, didn't need tending to. Um, and, and clearly part of the, the, the tragedy since October 7th is, is, is that good leadership, frankly, uh, uh, took its eye off the ball. Uh, I'd love to get your reaction to that and then, and then talk uh, about um, the resilience of the Abram Accords, because you were quite involved and, and supportive of the Abram Accords. And here we are, uh, 60 plus days into this conflict, and I'm curious to get your take, given all the tensions, regional, international, um, the diplomatic challenges, uh, whether you see that framework holding in this environment. Um, I, I do see the Abraham Accords holding, and I, I do think at, at some point the momentum behind an expansion of them to other Arab nations will continue as well. Um, the same strategic imperatives and logic that was driving that, that drove it back in 2019 and 2020, are still there, despite Hamas's atrocities against Israel. In some cases, you might say that's even more there. Uh, furthermore, it's not like any of these Arab nations have any sympathy for Hamas. Um, that they view Hamas as one of the more armed, militant offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood, which most of them have very little use for, because it's a threat to their own people and to their own governments. Um, so I do think the Abraham Accords, I even if it doesn't happen on the time that one might have expected on October 6th, will remain um, solid and, and they'll continu continue to grow as well. Um, I, I do think that one of the reasons this attack happened on October 7th is because the Ayatollahs in Tehran were worried uh, about that momentum mm -hmm. and uh, they wanted to take steps to forestall it. That may not be the only reason, that may not be the main reason, I, I think time will tell as probably more Hamas leaders are captured and interrogated. And here you're referencing the possibility of a Saudi 
Israel deal and, and that M was... Most particularly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Most particularly, but not, not just that, but most particularly. Um, again, as time will probably tell and we'll get more insight into exactly what Hamas, the key decision makers inside of Hamas decided like, why did this happen October 7th? Why didn't it happen last February? Why didn't it right. wait until next June or, or what have you? Um, I do think that the momentum behind the Abrahams Accord was one reason. I mean, I, I think the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War was another reason. Um, I mean, I remember waking up on the morning of, the October, of October 7th and just seeing the initial headlines uh, that were very incomplete, we now sadly know, about significant rocket and missile attacks from Gaza. And my immediate reaction was this is Tehran letting their dog off the chain to try to disrupt the momentum of, uh, of the Abraham Accord discussions. Um, obviously, when the full scale of the atrocities became clear throughout the day later, it was something more than that, but I do think that was part of it. So we were talking about deterrence, and there's definitely a story here of the erosion of deterrence overall. Um, but if you look in the north, north of Israel, there is this focus, and we've had skirmishes across the border, but it, it's escalated, but not to the point where I think either side would call it a, a northern front has opened up between Hezbollah and, and Israel. Uh, so I want to get your take on, on that and perhaps focus on, 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 on two Does that surprise you? I mean, you surprised given... Uh, where Tehran perhaps wants to go, that would uh, perhaps be uh, the next place to go to, to unleash uh, uh, chaos. Uh, and second, um, the United States has been most active from a military standpoint, at least publicly, on this front, uh, sending in one, at times, two carrier strike yeah. groups uh, to, to deter. We, we'll get to the Houthis in Yemen who've uh, introduced themselves into this conflict in, in a moment. But I'd love to get your, your take on how you see uh, Hezbollah and, and overall uh, what's, what has or has not happened in Northern yeah. Front. Um, well, the people who live in Northern Israel have had to be evacuated from it, probably don't view it as a very limited uh, conflict right now. Um, and I, I think there's a, a big question whether any Israeli government uh, in the future, whether it's from the far left to the far right, can accept a world in which Jews are not welcome to live on the northern border of Israel, or for that matter, on the southern border of Israel. I mean, that in a way kind of seeds one of the key points uh, of Zionism, that Jews should be able to live safely in their homeland and not just in Tel Aviv or Haifa, but, um, you know, in Sederat or in northern uh, Israel as well. Um, so I, I think it's an open question whether, not, well, not just, and the reason why it would be an open question for Israeli governments from the far left to the far right is whether the people of Israel will ever accept basically the fact that there might be no-go zones inside their country. Um, I, I think at the moment probably Israel would like to finish the war against Hamas in Gaza before a new full front opens up, even if there's uh, some fighting against Hezbollah or, or against attacks from Yemen, originating from Yemen and Syria. Um, I, I suspect as well that Hezbollah may have concerns as well about opening up a, an entire new front. Uh, I remember Hassan Nasrallah famously said after the 2006 war that if he had known Israel was going to respond the way it did, he wouldn't have launched it in the first place. And, and then finally there's Iran. I, I mean, Hezbollah's rockets and missiles, which dwarf Hamas's, uh, it, it's kind of like Iran's gun at the temple to Israel. And if they pull that gun, then they don't have that gun anymore. So deterrence for them at that point would depend solely on Iran and Israel would no longer, not only have, not, have no reason not to 
go for the jugular against Hezbollah, they wouldn't have no reason not to go for the jugular or at least go for significant retaliatory strikes against Iran itself. Yeah, I mean, Hezbollah, Hezbollah is already attacked. But Hezbollah, you know, mentioned it's like reported over 150,000 more sophisticated. It's not just rockets, it's missiles. And it's not just northern Israel, right? I mean, the, the, their ranges uh, yeah. extend way beyond. Uh, yeah, all, all uh, of Israel. Yeah. yeah. Right now it's limited to certain zones inside northern Israel, but all of Israel. Um, but uh, I think Iran sees Hezbollah as its main deterrent to Israel uh, against yeah. strikes on Iran itself or on you know its personnel or facilities throughout the Middle East. So I want to talk uh, shift slightly uh, to the U.S.'s response and 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 kind of the regional issues that have emerged um, to date. Reporting 78 attacks on U.S. forces uh, from October 1760, U.S. servicemen. Uh, injured either Iraq or Syria. Uh, my understanding of the Biden administration is they don't in any way connect this to October 7th, at least in, in, publicly stating it as such. Uh, you were on Fox News Sunday not too long ago calling for a quote-unquote massive retaliation um, and uh, would target the Iranians who are operating in, in, in Iraq and Syria. Um, there's been some response from the administration. Uh, I don't think anybody would accuse them of, uh, of, of responding massively, uh, retaliating massively. Uh, give me your take on how you would uh, address this uh, and the nexus, if at all, uh, between the targeting of U.S. forces by these, some at least, Iranian proxies on U.S. forces uh, in, in Iraq and in Syria. Well, I mean, I think it goes without saying that Iran is not scared of the United States. You know, their leaders are not scared of Joe Biden. Um, and, and I just want to make this point. That's not, you know, a policy argument. That's not partisan jousting. That's not an opinion. That is a fact. We have responded to their attacks on several occasions only to have more attacks. That's by definition the failure of deterrence. And we just saw it again this weekend escalating even further, now attacks directly on our embassy compound in Baghdad. Right. Um, and I think your question may be a little dated because I think it's a lot more than 78 attacks since October 7th. To go along with the 80 attacks from the time the president took office uh, to up till uh, October 7th, um, Iran has had a proxy strategy for over 30 years now. They've built up, in some cases created, and funded and trained and armed and equipped groups like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen and paramilitary groups in Iraq and, and Syria. Those groups attack Americans. When we respond, when we don't respond, it's really bad, but when we respond only by striking proxies, especially empty proxy warehouses, all we do is validate Iran's proxy strategy. Like when we blow up a weapons cache of a paramilitary group in Syria, in Tehran they're high-fiving. Like, see, it works. They're not going to hold us accountable for all this. When we all know, and even senior administration officials admit publicly and on the record, that Iran is accountable for all these attacks. So if you want the attacks to stop, you have to attack something that Iran holds dear itself. Um, like President Trump did when he killed Iran's terrorist mastermind, Qasem Soleimani, in Iraq in 2020. Or maybe a more apt analogy is what Ronald Reagan did in 1986 after Libyan-backed terrorists blew up a nightclub in Berlin frequented by American service members. He almost killed Muammar Gaddafi and blew up much of their military infrastructure in Libya. Or, or maybe most apt is what Ronald Reagan did in the tanker wars in 1987 and 1988. 
Iran was in right. part of its war with Iraq was mining the Persian Gulf. That was causing big problems for lots of reasons. We flagged tankers with American flags, which we almost never do, so our Navy could escort them. Um, ultimately, one of those tankers hit uh, an Iranian mine. Reagan blew up a couple of oil platforms. The next day, he walked just a couple blocks from here. He walked out to Marine One on the South Lawn. Reporter said, are we at war with Iran now? And he said, no, we're not at war with Iran. They wouldn't be stupid enough to go to war with us. He basically was right about that. But about six months later, I guess they'd forgotten the message. Uh, one of their mines blew up uh, an actual American naval vessel, and then he sank half of their navy. And then they stopped mining the Persian Gulf. And in fact, just like six months later, the Iran-Iraq war was over because they were afraid that what Ronald Reagan would do next, maybe side fully with Iraq in that war. So if you want the attacks on our troops to stop, if you want to prevent a mass casualty attack, which I'm afraid is going to happen soon, uh, you have to take firm and decisive action against what Iran holds most dear. It's key leaders running around the region promoting and supporting these groups, or it's military facilities, ships, aircraft, refineries, something critical that Iran does not want to lose. Uh, only then is Iran going to pull in its horns. So short of uh, having the, the Biden administration adopt the quote-unquote Reagan approach to uh, the Gulf, uh, you've been taking some action in the Congress. I wonder if you uh, would expand upon it because you know, the, the line between certainly what Israel's enduring with the continued rocket attacks on its sovereign territory, uh, we're talking about Hezbollah's um, arsenal, uh, the attacks on uh, U.S. forces uh, in Syria and Iraq, and then of course uh, with the Houthis, which have shown pretty sophisticated stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's this it's coming from Iran, uh, uh, providing these capabilities to their proxies, and you you put forward the No ICMs or Drones for Iran Act. Um, seems. Seems like a good idea. Um, give, give us a sense of the, the prospect of that, and of course, uh, is tied, I think, to what lapsed um, in terms of yeah. Iran-related uh, Iran sanctions and came yeah, out of the yeah. JCPOA. Well, don't forget that those Iranian missiles and drones are also going to Russia to attack no innocent yeah. civilians in Ukraine as well. It is, you know, October, I think it was October 18th, around, the, around about then, that uh, another deadline from the failed Iran nuclear deal passed, and it was the... Uh, um, sunsetting of international multilateral sanctions on Iran's missile program. So imagine that, like 11 days after the attack by Hamas in Israel, we allowed sanctions on Iran's missile programs to expire. Um, again, just because President Biden and those around him, who were those same people around um, Barack Obama, are so invested in the failed Iran nuclear deal. Um, it's just one example of how there really has not been a, a single bit of change in, in our Iran policy from October 6th. It's like the attack never happened. Um, as it relates to Iran and, and how we're interacting with Iran and our policy towards the country. Um, we've got a couple more minutes here and I uh, want to hit on, on two more items. First, uh, going back to U.S. policy as it relates to Israel, we uh, recently had uh, Secretary of Defense speak at the Reagan National Defense Forum, and uh, his comments were bookended in terms as it relates to uh, the Gaza war with uh, strong support uh, for Israel on both ends, but in between, uh, you had a lot of language in terms of, of U.S. Uh, and his role in, in, in speaking to Israelis, pressing Israelis, those are his words, uh, to protect civilians and to ensure the robust flow of humanitarian aid. Um, and. Um, he said, quote, I have personally pushed Israeli leaders to avoid civilian casualties 
uh, and to shun irresponsible rhetoric and to prevent violence by settlers in West Bank and to dramatically expand access to humanitarian aid. Um, he was celebrated by in some corners for, for that language and then criticized in others for being, uh, kind of making public uh, the sorts of feedback that you would expect allies uh, to give to one another uh, um, you know, behind closed doors. Um, what's your view in terms of what Israel has done vis-a-vis uh, -vis protecting civilians as it carries out its campaign uh, to destroy Hamas? I mean, count me as a critic of Secretary Austin's statement there. The last thing Israel needs is patronizing lectures about the laws of war or um, civilian casualties. Israel goes far above and beyond its requirements under the laws of war to try to minimize civilian casualties. That's hard to do when Hamas is hiding in hospitals and schools and residential areas. It's hard to do when they're holding hostages so they won't be attacked. I mean, Hamas is to blame for civilian casualties because they didn't just commit war crimes on October 7th, they continue to commit them every single day, in addition to firing rockets and missiles indiscriminately into Israel. And I would just go back again to what I said that October 7th is more akin to Pearl Harbor. Like, we were not wringing our hands about civilian casualties in Germany and Japan in the 1940s. We killed over 100,000 Japanese on the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945, in the firebombing of Tokyo. That was not a nuclear weapon. 100,000 a single night. Israel goes above and beyond its requirements. I don't remember in Iraq or Afghanistan, us sending text messages to civilians in neighborhoods about an attack coming in, which obviously will get to Hamas. I don't remember dropping leaflets telling people where to go. In fact, as recently as the Battle of Mosul, there wasn't much of that going on. So I think Israel should be commended for what it does to try to avoid civilian casualties. They don't need patronizing lectures from Joe Biden or his cabinet. All right, let's uh, move to one other item, which we, we've had a chance to speak about uh, in the past, but so central uh, to this discussion, but somehow does not get uh, the consistent attention. Uh, I think it merits. <clears throat> 30 Americans were killed uh, on October 7th. Uh, there remains uh, eight American hostages, as far as we know, in Gaza being held by Hamas or other uh, terrorist organizations. Two questions. To what extent because of that alone, does this make this war America's war? And two, what are we not doing that we should be doing uh, to free American hostages? And I'll just note, we talk about 444 days. Yeah. Uh, we all know that references the number of days you had American hostages in Tehran. Most Americans wouldn't understand what 65 means, which I believe is the number of days uh, since we've had Americans held hostage. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it may be the worst terror attack in terms of American, Americans killed since 9-11 itself. Um, and the administration seems to overlook that, that they don't make much of it publicly in terms of what we're going to do to respond. You know, I've said that we have, uh, you know, in the last two months, you know, we have specially trained forces in our military who are specifically um, uh, prepared to go in for hostage rescue. We need to make those available if it would help Israel. Now, Israel has control of the authority of Gaza. We wouldn't go in unilaterally. Um, but if Israel, if we have an opportunity to help Israel to get back not just its own citizens, but our citizens and, and our special operations forces who are specifically trained in hostage rescue, then of course 
right. we should make them available. Um, and, and also from the very beginning, President Biden should have been much more forceful, not just with Hamas and their political leadership in their you know, million dollar condos in Doha, but also with Tehran about what would happen if Americans weren't released. Um, but apparently, the leadership of Hamas fears the Philippines and Thailand more than they fear the United States of America since those nations got their hostages back. Well, I want to pursue that point. I mean, I've heard you say that elsewhere. I mean, it's, if you look at the, the raw numbers, <clears throat> Hamas has released Israelis to Israel, the mortal enemy. Uh, you mentioned uh, the international workers uh, uh, who have been released, Russians uh, who have been released, yet U.S. citizens uh, have not. Certainly, you've, you've had three, I believe. Um, what, what more can be done? Obviously, the, you know, there's, there's a milita the military option, but for the reasons you've outlined, it's complex. Uh, what else can the United States do on, on that front? Well, I mean, I think that's one of the fundamental things to do. I mean, there's, there's a reason why the hostages got released the day Ronald Reagan took office. And I know some people who apologize for the Carter administration say, well, that's not the case. I mean, look, the Ayatollahs are not afraid of Jimmy Carter. They were afraid of Ronald Reagan. Um, and right now, the Hamas and their masters in Tehran are simply not afraid of Joe Biden. That's why, that's why Americans haven't been released. I bet they are afraid of Vladimir Putin. Um, all right, last question, um, and really thank you, Senator, for, for the time. Uh, there's some work for Congress to do. Um, there is pending uh, before the Congress a supplemental, which includes uh, funding for Ukraine. Uh, President uh, Zelensky is, is in town. I believe he's meeting with senators, if he didn't do it today, tomorrow. Uh, and also funding uh, for Israel. It's all in one package, as well as some, some other uh, funding items. You're a newsmaker here at the United <laughs> States Institute of Peace. Do you want to make some news and tell us when that funding package will, will go through and we could all uh, join in your festive attire here and celebrate <laughs> congressional support? Uh, I do not foresee it passing this month uh, before Congress uh, recesses. For I said first festive, Senator. That's not festive. Um, so, so the president proposed legislation that would address four, uh, four different uh, issues, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and our border and Republicans have insisted from the very beginning that we have credible and serious changes to border policy which is allowing a total crisis there just to to stress how big a crisis it is 12 there were several days last week when 12,000 illegal migrants entered our country across the border 12,000 to put that in perspective Jay Johnson who was Barack Obama's Secretary of Homeland Security said that 1,000 would overload the system 1,000. Mm. Or to put it in a different way, uh, in one week at that rate, uh, the number of illegal migrants who cross in this country would become like the fourth or fifth largest city in Arkansas. Um, and, and thus far, the Democrats simply have not been serious about negotiating for the kind of genuine changes to uh, policy that would help us secure a border again, mostly on asylum and parole. And until that happens, I, I don't see the legislation passing as a whole. Now, I support all parts of it. I support Ukraine. I don't support Joe Biden's Ukraine policy. Of course, I support Israel. I, I think we need to strengthen our defenses in the Western Pacific and help Taiwan do the same. And of course, I want to solve the crisis at our border. I'm happy to pass it all in one package. I'm happy to pass it in more than one bill. Um, but we have to make sure that Joe Biden cares as much as about our border as he cares about another nation's border. And, and right now, he just doesn't seem to do so. I guess we'll have to wait till after Christmas for that, uh, that gift. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Senator Cotton for being here at USIP for our Newsmaker Series. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Roger. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.